This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, that's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 111. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. So for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Scott Miller. He is the founder of Greenhaven Road Capital. While at the helm of Greenhaven Road Capital, the firm has outperformed the Russell 2000 by approximately 25% and 29% net over the past three and five year periods, according to Greenhaven's Q4 2019 investor letter, and very recently created a new offering, the Partners Fund, which we discussed in this interview. Scott is very passionate about investing, and it comes through in spades during our chat you're about to hear. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 111 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Scott Miller. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2020 investor conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me, maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast, to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And with me today, my guest is Scott Miller. He is the founder of Greenhaven Road Capital. Scott, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, looking forward to this. It's my first podcast, so let's uh, see what we got. Well, I'm really happy to be the your the the one to to break you in. You know, and I and I promise to go easy on you. All right. Thank you. All right. So uh, to really get started here, you know, I, I uh, doing a little bit of research about you and Green, Greenhaven Road Capital. You know, um, I saw according to your bio that you actually really got your start investing after graduating from Stanford Business School in 2000. Not not to date you or anything, um, you know, and <laughs> I mean, did you always have an interest in investing? And, yeah, and, you know, it's a good um, question. Um, look, I, I grew up in New York City, so a little bit around uh finance uh, probably more than someone who you know kind of grew up in akron ohio akron ohio or something um one of my 
best friends growing up. His dad was one of the early hedge fund uh, investors and was actually featured in a book called Market Wizards. Hmm. And so uh, I read that book. Uh, to really date me, that book came out in 1989. So uh, it's a classic at this point. But, uh, you know, like in the book, they feature, you know, I think it was like 15 fund managers. And, and it was it was eye opening to me, the number of ways that people made money. And it just sort of seemed really interesting. And, you know, my, my father um, ran a white shoe polish company, which was wonderful in many ways. Like it put me through college. Right. But when I read Market Wizards, that seemed more interesting than 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 the shoe polish business. Um, and so, uh, you know, back then there weren't that many ways to sort of enter into investing. Uh, there was less personal investing. Uh, they didn't have podcasts and Twitter and blogs. And by the way, people make fun of Twitter, but I find it to be a really good resource. Uh, all this classic investing content is out there if you find the right people. And so, but that didn't exist for me. Right. And so, um, you know, I I watched a lot of CNBC, uh, you know, Jim Cramer from from way back. And the signal to noise ratio wasn't great, but uh, it's what I had. And uh, so I had an interest in investing. Um, when I graduated from college, uh, I didn't do two years of Goldman Sachs. I, I worked in a family business, uh, not the true polish business. But my dad was also involved in a paper bag business. So I spent four years in Yonkers, New York, um, managing a bag factory and uh, learning business. Like, you know, I think people operating a business is a really good foundation for investing, right? I think it helps you understand the companies that you're analyzing. And so, you know, I saw a really bad business, like front row, right? So paper bags, like cyclical, low margin, effectively no barriers to entry, right? And so that was my world for, for four years. Um, and also, like, we did a lot of direct mail at that point. And um, it was all about, like, were customer acquisition costs and lifetime value, which, you know, is sort of novel analysis in the SaaS world these days. But like, you know, we were doing that uh, back in the day. And so I had a lot of interest, went and had more of an operating background, went to business school and then went uh, to work in a, a private equity type setting. Uh, and at business school, I did kind of an investing track. This guy, Jack McDonald, who was, you know, the sort of legend there. I did hit all his classes, and then I, I I went and worked at a fund where we had you know private equity is very long term uh, time horizons and looked at product markets and teams, and then um, you know eventually ended up uh, going to work at a fund. Um, so I think I had the the plead was the seed was planted in high school. It took a long time, kind of between high school and when Greenhaven Road w was founded, and there was kind of a, a combination of operating uh, businesses and, and investing along the way. And Scott, what, what would you say then led to the development of Greenhaven Road Capital? Yeah, I think it's kind of a, a long journey. Um, you know, I had I had a lot of success investing uh, my own money, my personal savings, uh, kind of after after business school and applying what I'd learned there and in, in, in the private equity setting and public markets. And um, you know, quite frankly, I, I owned Apple uh, for an entire period where you really wanted to do it. Bought it from kind of cash on the balance sheet to, you know, the iPod and eventually the iPhone and getting multiple on it. So, uh, you know, that helped. And, and so it's a combination of uh, had an interest, had a fair amount of success. And then, um, you know, I just, I just find it interesting, right? Like some people love like to fish. I love to invest, right? To me, it's, it's not really work. It's, it, it's fun. It's putting the puzzle together. It's, it's like trying to, predict what's going to happen and, and how it'll be reflected in, in the share price. And so um, I, I ended up where I was 
in this operating role, uh, I'm the CFO of a business, uh, but I, I really wanted to invest full time. Um, and so it's like if I was walking my dog, I was thinking about the portfolio. I wasn't thinking like, how do we make our customers happy? And, and so I, I knew I had to make a change. And um, that's not so easy going from the CFO of a business that manages Head Start centers to, to a professional investing role. Even I had a you know, pretty good resume, but nobody was like, that's the analyst we want. Um, but I was able to, uh, some, some folks I'd been through in the investing program at Sanford had started a fund. I was able to work there and I was there. Uh, during the financial crisis, and that's a whole kind of separate vein we can go down. But, but the sort of how did Greenhaven get started? Well, during the financial crisis, uh, the fund that I was working at lost a lot of the assets, uh, not really performance related, actually, but uh, liquidity related. And um, so I was out, you know, uh, out of the business again, and and I was trying to get back in. I went back on the operating side, and while I was well, as but I was applying for jobs and. Um, I basically went through a process where I pitched a company that I knew from the operating side. Uh, you know, when you apply for jobs, right, there's a, often a stock pitch component to it, right? And I, I, I went to this fund. I, I pitched a company. I, I knew it from the operating side. It had this off balance sheet thing. It was really quirky. It was, it was like, it was good, I think. And um, in the course of like the six weeks I was interviewing, uh, you know, my write up said like it would get acquired by General Atlantic Partners. Um, at, at a big, uh, you know, for about two bucks or whatever, all this happened, right? I like hit a walk-off home run during the interview process and I didn't get the job. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God. You know, like I was up like an absurd amount in my personal account. I just crushed the interview. I didn't get the job. And I was like, well, I can like have these people validate me or try and find someone who thinks I can do this or like I can start my own, you know, <laughs> my own thing. And so, you know, instead of waiting for an invite, to get invited to somebody else's party, I was like, look, I'm just going to do it on my own. And so I, I was able to, you know, I took a million dollars in personal savings. And I raised a million dollars from friends and family um, based on, you know, kind of the track record that I'd put up. And so uh, now just to be clear, that's like, it's not really a great business, a $2 million fund. Right. And, and um, so I ended up working for the, you know, continuing my day job for the first you know four years of the fund. So it's a whole, Another story about like how much time you need to spend on on running a fund, et cetera. But uh, long story short, you know, I, I had worked in a, in a real fund setting. I, I felt like I had the ability to do it. Couldn't, you know, <laughs> other people didn't agree with me. Uh, eventually, started my own thing. I mean, what a story! I mean, I I, I can't believe you walk in, you you hit a home run in the interview, you have a great pick and everything. I, I'm so curious what happened there. That's so strange. Well, I think he actually hired his brother. Which so on some level, you're like, hard to compete with that. And I actually saw the guy uh, uh, like a month ago at a conference, and uh, I'm sure he doesn't remember me. I certainly remember him, and uh, just and then he was with an analyst, so his brother, not his brother. So, <laughs> hey, he's nep- still in the game. He's still in the game. Hey, nep- nepotism is a it's a <laughs> powerful thing. I it's guess. a thing. <laughs> so. Um, you know, I also want to mention on, on your website, you talk about uh, you have your, your partner's fund on there. So I'm also curious what led to the creation of that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have a, a fund of funds that's um, focused on on small managers. Um, and, and so I basically came to the conclusion that I had a, a number of LPs that, uh, look, the world is not set up to invest in small managers. People don't actually, uh, it's, there's career risk involved in it. There, there are some risks that small fund come with small funds, right? So, um, and then a fund of funds focused on really small funds is not a great business. 
um, because you, you you charge very low fees, and if you're going to charge very low fees, you need a huge AUM. And so as a consequence, if you have huge AUM, then you're not investing in really small managers. So it's like this. Uh, it just kind of doesn't make sense as a standalone entity. But, uh, you know, I think historically superior returns have been generated by small managers. Um, I felt like I had a really good network of, of small managers and a group of limited partners that wanted um, something that was Greenhaven Road-like. And maybe they had their full Greenhaven Road allocation, but they would you know, be interested in this fund of funds, assuming the kind of fees were fair, et cetera. And so, um, you know, basically our criteria for the partners fund are um, – investment committee of one, uh, uh, concentrated holdings, reasonable AUM, uh, original thinking, uh, significant personal investment, um, and a mindset where getting rich is not the point. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, we want people that want to make money, but you know, I think kind of like me where, you know, the way I think about it is if you have uh, someone who's thinking all day about the Ferrari they want to buy, right, oh, I want the whatever trim and this and that, or the, the guy who's thinking all day about, you know, what's the product cadence? When are they going to put out the SUV? What are the margins going to be on that? Right. And they're putting together the business puzzle. I, ra- I way rather have the guy putting together the puzzle than the guy who's like thinking about how they're going to spend the money. And so that's, that's the kind of, that's the idea behind the partners fund. And uh, we're investing in about a, a, a dozen small managers. And, um, you know, I think back to kind of the, it doesn't really make sense as a standalone business. Um, for me, it's, it's part of like putting together an ecosystem. And so, it uh, it has been a source of, of good ideas for me. Um, and so I, if I put one good idea through our kind of main fund, the economics are really good. And so, you know, while it's not a good standalone thing and, and no one's probably going to go recreate it for a variety of reasons, I think uh, given kind of what I'm trying to create here, it, it makes a lot of sense uh, on a standalone basis and as part of Greenhaven uh, Road Capital. So actually, uh, before I, I, I get to your investing philosophy, which we're, we're going to get into very shortly, you know, I, I actually do want to go back to, um, you know, that jump from when you, you know, you were still working the full time job for four years and running the fund because a lot of our, my audience are happen to be smaller fund managers, you know, have, right. you know, only a few million uh, AUM or, or, you know, maybe 15 to 20 or less, whatever it is, you know, so I'm just curious, you know, at what point did, during that four years there, you were like, okay, once I hit this threshold, then I think I'm ready to yeah. go off on my own. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I'd say a couple of things. One is my investing style was conducive to doing it kind of on the side, right? So I'm concentrated and I'm low turnover, right? So I'm not like trying to trade news flow and, you know, I'm basically investing in things I, I generally understand. Right. And so, um, <clears throat> So it was conducive to it. You know, I, I also I kind of was able to peel back my, my full-time gig to kind of four and three days a week. And so uh, I had a pretty nice kind of balance there. Um, I think at the end, though, there, there were there were a couple of things that, that tipped it for me. Um, one was, quite frankly, like hair started falling out in places that it shouldn't have fallen out of. Like there was a stress component that was going on. Uh, in the operating world, like operating business is so much hard, harder, in my opinion, than investing, right? Like it just, uh, you're not in control. It, it's just much harder. And, and so there, there was a kind of a, a stress component to it, but, but also, you know, I had a year where I, um, <clears throat> had really good returns and I added one limited partner. Right. And so I wasn't doing any, any marketing. And so I went to my wife and I was like, look, there are a couple things going on here. Like, 
I, I have a track record, I think, that, that appeals to people. You know, I'm basically in the closet because I haven't been totally forthright with the people I'm working with that I'm doing this also, right? I didn't, you know, they, if they asked, I would tell them, but like, I didn't like advertise right. that, that I was doing it, right? And so, um, and look, I'm, I'm managing our life savings kind of, you know, on the side, like that doesn't totally make sense. And so, and also quite frankly, my wife worked. At the, and, and so like we had income, we had a bunch of savings, had a track record. I'm like, if I don't take a run at this, like who, you know, like, so I totally de-risked it. Right. And, and so then I, 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 I kind of went for it. Um, and then, and then so. your, pre- and then your previous employers all became the next LPs. No, I'm, I'm just. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they no, did? Oh, they I, did. Oh, good. I've been really fortunate, right? So uh, at the fund I worked at, that, that you know, we, we ran into trouble. Those guys were, you know, three of the folks from there are limited partners. Um, the CEO I worked with in the operating business is a limited partner. Uh, and my first boss is my dad, and he's a limited partner, too. So, uh, you know, yeah. So they, over time, became limited partners, yes. Nice. All right, so. To dig now into your the the firm's uh, and funds investing philosophy, you know, as as it states on the firm's website, uh, and I quote, you know, we carefully cultivate the unusual to create a lasting, uncommon portfolio. And quote, you know, so I, I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on the firm's investing philosophy. Yeah, so I mean, I look, I think uh, on some level, my philosophy is like, do what works, right? And so I think that of this as a, a thirty or forty year vehicle times are going to change and I, I have to kind of adapt. Right. And so uh, I don't have like a specific like formula for anything. Um, but I do think that I have some advantages. Right. And so I do want to take advantage of, uh, of those. Um, so I can be selective. Right. Like, you know, I have a very broad mandate for my investors. I, I can be as selective as I want to be. I can go anywhere geographically. I can go anywhere market cap wise. I have a really long time horizon. And so you know, I think we, we use some words uh, like unusual, uncommon, right? Like, I'm not looking to just like recreate a, an index fund here. That's not like going to be my life's work, right? And so I, I want things that are, you know, I, th- I believe to be highly asymmetric, right? And so, uh, and that's going to change over time. And my definition of, of, of value is, is going to change over time. But, you know, I, I think uh, we're going to put together, you know, I, I don't want to like overstate it, but like I think more of like a craftsman, like trying to kind of put together something thoughtfully, right? And so we're going to both put together uh, different companies that are perhaps you know misunderstood. These aren't things that are necessarily going to screen well, um, and we're going to, as I put it together, we're trying to take different sets of risks, mm-hmm. right? And so it's not just going to be all uh, one version of like long commodities or something like that right i mean some of them are going to be around like the team they're going to be more jockey bets some of them are going to be more industry bets some of them you know they're going to have different um embedded uh risks in them if we do it right for sure well you know what i thought because i mean you know as as you know you're talking to kind of a micro cap guy here you know micro nano cap guy mm-hmm. so when i when i saw unusual and uncommon i was like you know that those are very familiar words in our in our uh, atmosphere to say the least yeah and it, i mean i'm sure it sounds like when yeah, you're in that look i mean yeah. so half my portfolio you know or more is kind of sub a billion uh and you know i think just one other thing in terms of like what i'm trying to do i i am trying to create an ecosystem and give myself certain advantages and and, and so that's like kind of less about a firm philosophy or maybe that is the firm philosophy that i'm trying to give myself advantages and so 
um, you know, the partners fund we talked about. I think the other piece is um, I have uh, Chuck Royce, who in, in the microcap world is, you know, one of the, one of the uh, godfathers or pioneers of, of um, microcap investing. And, and he, I work out of his family office. Um, he's uh, one of my seed, he's my seed investor. And, and so I basically decided I was able to partner with him and, you know, I get access to a bunch of resources and, and, and IP that I, they wouldn't have otherwise. And so, um, and then I think the, the kind of third piece, if I'm, if I'm putting this together right, and have some advantages, it's, you know, the partners fund, Royce, and then my limited partner base um, is my biggest group of, investor, of investors are themselves investors, right? So maybe I'm a chef's chef or, you know, however you want to view it. There's people that have run funds, used to run funds, work at funds, you know, um, and then we have a bunch of entrepreneurs. And so uh, I think, really lucky to have the LP base that I do. And, you know, I think just as, as an aside, or you, you said sort of a bunch of people are out there kind of building their funds. Um, I, I think I have two things. One is like, I actually don't like to make the ask. So I, I'll not, I, you know, I have people I've known for a long time, right? When I had almost no assets, I, I wasn't going to send them and saying, Hey, like I have this fund, you know, please invest. Like, uh, but so I don't make the ask generally, uh, or ever, but, um, so we've had people come in, right? So so the letters go out, uh, people hear about it, something resonates with them. Uh, quite frankly, we don't follow up either. And and um, not in a bad way, like if people have a question, we'll answer it. But but the, the general notion is that at the end of the day, people are going to be hopefully highly philosophically aligned that do choose to come in and really want to be there. And so, you know, my style, right, is going to have volatility and we're going to have down periods, right? We're going to have down you know, months down, quarters down, years, and uh, but I really want to have a long time horizon. So I need really philosophically aligned investors, mm-hmm. right? Who understand that like we're not going to have a smooth eight, but you know we might have a bumpy twelve, and that's going to actually be way way better, right? And so um, you know, I think in terms of like philosophy, right? Like we're trying to get the right people in the fund, like and just be transparent, like this is what we're doing, and. You know, I think uh, one other thing is like I, I put out these fairly long letters and I, I walk through like like key holdings. Right. And so I don't want to just be like this black box that spits out statements like, you know, every three months. And like all they have to go on is like, hey, you were up a little bit, you were down a little bit or whatever. Like I want them to know what we own and why we own it. Right. Because like. And they may not agree with it. They may, may decide to redeem because of it. But like, they're also more likely to stick around because they understand how I think, and hopefully it's aligned with them. Or you know, sometimes I'll hear like, "I like what you're doing. I can't do it myself, or I would do it if I had more time." And you know, those are the types of people we want. Gotcha. All right. So you actually mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, a, l- a little bit about your investing strategy and that you're you're concentrated. You know, and and you said something else as well. But of course, it's not coming to me. But you know, I <laughs> but but. You know, why did you then choose this strategy to to really reflect the firm's philosophy? So, look, I mean, I think in terms of concentration, there are a few things. At the end of the day, like, I don't want to invest my fiftieth best idea, right? Like, my tenth best best idea, I think, is probably better than my fiftieth best, right? I actually, um, for a variety of reasons, believe there are a lot of ways to make money. I think, for me personally, like investment committee of one is the right way to do it. I can't trick. I can't track a hundred things well, right? And and uh, you know, so I want to be concentrated enough that if I'm right, it 
it matters, right? And I, I'm rewarded for it, right? If I have 150 positions and I'm right, like, you know, okay, great. Uh, and, and But if I'm wrong, I don't blow up, right? So I'm not going to be a fund of, of, like, my life savings here. I can't be, like, go back to my kids and be like, sorry, guys. You know, <laughs> daddy was wrong on that one. Like, it's time to move. Uh, but, you know, so it's like, it's the balance. And to me, you know, it's roughly 15 positions. Sometimes we might get down to 12. Sometimes we might creep up to 18 or 19, you know, depending on a variety of factors. But it's in that range of like, you know, if we're right, we get, you know, we're rewarded. And if we're wrong, we survive. All right. So let's dig into that criteria then that you look for in a potential new investment to to add to that portfolio. You know, what, what are some of your criteria? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, at, at a high level, the portfolio is to split into two groups. Um, there's high quality companies that we'll hopefully own for, you know, five plus years and there's special situations and, and the criteria are, are different for those. I think in, in, for both of them, I mean, I think we want some asymmetry where hopefully there's substantially more upside than downside. I think in both of them, generally not looking for something that, you know, is trading for $20, it might go to $22, right? We're, we're, we're probably taking slightly bigger, bigger swings than that. Um, and so I think, Ideally, particularly on the companies we're going to hold for a longer period of time, uh, high insider ownership is something I, I really uh, focus on probably more than most investors. Um, just you know, believe in the alignment of incentives. Uh, it's also, to me, an indication of capital allocation skills, right? If somebody, you know, I've been on the on the other side of raising money and everything. Like, if you're able to hold on to forty percent of your company and uh, you know, through going public, like you've made a series of really good, you know, capital allocation decisions there along the way. Probably. Um, so higher insider ownership, recurring revenue, and operating leverage, operating leverage, or there's like expanding margin. And so um, those are, you know, we don't always get all three of them, but those are things we like. And then I, I run it through this lens that sort of predates to the private equity world of product risks, product risk, market risk, team risk, and execution risk. Hmm. And, and those are um, sort of some quick filters I do. Um, on investment. So. so so this is a question I've asked to a few guests I've had on here and I'm curious to your opinion. You know, what type of hair would you say or, or things that you're like, oh, this company has this, but you know, I'm okay with it because, you know, it meets two out of the three or, you know, four out of the five things that I'm looking for for a potential investment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that answer is coupled with what do I think the upside is, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, and how am I sizing it, right? So uh, we will, uh, from time to time, invest in things that I think have a, you know, a decent chance of being a zero, right? Uh, which doesn't seem like a very good strategy. But if I also think it could be a, a triple, right? And I go, okay, there's a 15% chance it's a zero and an 85% chance it's a triple. The expected value is actually pretty high. So now, look, we're not going to make that a 15% position, but uh, I, I take a series of those, right? And so, um, you know, I think, look, if you can't trust the financials, that's, like, pretty hard to pretty hard to invest. Uh, you know, I, I, I really believe that people build businesses, and, and when you get into, you know, uh, potential – fraud and convicts that's really hard uh to do although you know I, I invested for a while in this company libson uh which is ls lsyn i don't know anymore but and, and investor eric shahanian like got in there and fixed it right but 
you know, it was super compelling for all these valuation reasons and you had like problematic management. So like, it's tough for me to say like, I would never do this because if in the right kind of situation, uh, I, I just might, um, again, look, it has to be really asymmetric. Um, we have to be getting more than rewarded for the hair and, you know, the best kind of hair, right. Is that which, which can, can go away or be fixed relatively easily. And so, um, gotcha. So I, I, I'm probably gonna edit this part out, but it's so funny. I literally was just looking at this more cause I use Podbean for, for posting uh-huh. the podcast. So I was, I was just looking at because I had that I've been using that from the beginning, so I was actually just looking at you know that versus Libsyn just out of curiosity. There's like some crazy, like there's some crazy stuff that happened with Libsyn, and there was a guy in China who was in jail who owned 11 percent of the company, and like I was trying to like get his shares, right? Like that was one of the things. Like part of it is like you get rid of that convict, like that sort of helped, and you had you got to get enough shares, you could challenge management that was doing sort of all these funny things, and um, but you know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so real quick, I actually wanted to uh, follow up on on something you talked about earlier when it came to, uh, you know, Chuck Royce as your seed investor for the fund. I mean, that's that's such a a validation. I mean, uh, I actually had uh, uh, Bill Hench from Royce on, on the podcast uh, back in some of the earlier episodes. So, I mean, what were some of the lessons that that Chuck gave you to gave you some confidence moving forward with Green Haven? Yeah. So. Um... I think uh, the, the biggest lesson, I, I think, look, there, there have been a ton in terms of how to live your life and how to treat people. And, uh, you know, I, I think he is, he's an absolute gem. And, like, there, there are people in the world, uh, he's a special guy. I, let's leave it at, at that. But um, I think from an investing standpoint, um, you know, one time I went to him and I was, I was looking at something that was, you know, super illiquid, but, but pretty interesting. And I asked him about, like, the liquidity premium. Or illiquidity premium that you know, kind of he would demand to go into a situation like that, and he basically said you're kind of not looking at it the right way, which you know, not not that surprising. But he's like, you just have to be sure you're going to get to the other side, right? Like it, it this t- basically this type of situation when 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 liquidity is super constrained, you're getting married, and, and it's about like, will how confident are you that you'll get to the other side? Um, which you know, I think is a particularly in like the you know nano cap world right it, it's it's super relevant right like you know i, I quite frankly own some shit uh, you know a couple of things that haven't traded today right like you know my ability to get out will be is limited and and so like on the front end i had to be comfortable that this i'd be there for five years or, or, or longer and that there was no easy way out and so um you know i think he he's seen it you know kind of a bunch of different ways i, I think the other you know, uh, little, not, not like kind of bumper sticker saying, or, but, you know, he generally like, you know, there are exceptions to every rule, but he's like, you know, we've been involved in some things that have, you know, days where they've sold off and he's, his first reaction is, 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 is actually to buy, but not to sell. Like it is, is not sell. And then it's like, should we, should we be buying? Right. And, and so I think where most people are like literally running for the exits, he's like, all right, you know, probably going to stand our ground here should we be buying um and you know i think on the on the fund to fund side actually you know he's very interested in, in managers who had a tough period right and and so you know there's like this notion of reversion to the mean and you know i think the the, the tendency when, when when looking at managers and poor managers is just going with the hot hand 
right? And and he's done it enough times and seen enough people that uh, he's at least asking the questions like, who's down the most? Mm. That doesn't mean he's actually putting capital in there, but like it's an interesting hunting ground. Um, you know, so who's had a really strong track record? Who's you know had a tough run here? And, and so, um, you know, I, I think there, uh, you know, there, there's an enormous amount I've learned from him. I, I, I really enjoy spending time with him. Um, you know, I, I think there are also lessons just in terms of uh, being a generous person. I mean, he, he just sort of is generous to people in, in ways where he, he's not doing it because he expects something back. It is, you know, through pure generosity, which is, is you know, cool. a pleasure to watch. That's that's so cool and really awesome. I, I'm sure literally we could do a whole episode just on everything you've learned from him. So, you know, uh, we'll save that for next time. Uh, so uh, now I want to actually get to the uh, Q4 2019 investor investment letter that you just put out. You know what what yep. were what were some of the key takeaways that you want our audience and readers to know and, and be aware of this last quarter and for 2020? Yeah, I mean, let's see. I'm gonna think about that. I mean, the letter wasn't written for your audience, right? It was written for my investors. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, I would say what, what I wanted them to know which I think has some relevance to your, to your audience, was, hey, a lot of this is what, what we don't own, right? And so, um, you know, I underperformed the S&P 500 in, in 2019, right? And so um, I also don't own anything right now in the S&P 500. And so in the letter, I, 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 I tried to kind of pick apart, uh, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? Like no one has a gun to my head and says, I, I can't own Apple, right? Um, but, you know, what do you think happened to Apple's revenue and earnings? You know, Apple was almost doubled last year, right? What, what do you think revenues and earnings did last year? That's a question. I'm, I'm turning this around. Oh, you're turning this around. Question me, for you. I'm going I'm to assume it didn't double. Stock doubled. Not the revenues. <laughs> right. Revenues and earnings were both down. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so that's the largest company in the S&P 500. You know, the same, look, and I get it's partly forward and there's a product cycle and there, there's sort of reasons for it and stuff. But, but a lot of it was... Last year was effectively multiple expansion, right? And uh, I also looked at, you know, Microsoft. And another question for you. Uh, what do you think Microsoft's EV to sales is? Like, what multiple of sales is Microsoft trading at? It beats me. I, didn't, I, I, I haven't seen. It's a big company, right? It's in year 30 or whatever, right? Like, it's not a startup anymore uh, here. It, it's growing, it, you know, almost nine times sales. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's got a growth rate like 14%, mm-hmm. right? So, like... Is that going to double in what time frame is it going to double? Like, I don't really know. But my, my point was, like, look, these things did well last year. And, you know, God bless the people that own them. And, and they're good businesses. And we've owned them in the past. Maybe we'll own them in the future. But, like, it doesn't feel like the next double for those super large companies is going to be that easy. And so I, I wanted to make that point. And, like, you know, we'll see if we get rewarded for being kind of more on the fringe or not and when. Um, but I wanted to make that point. I think the other thing. I'm going to a couple names if you want. I mean, uh, I went into our portfolio. Uh, in all our letters, I go to the top five holdings. Um, I think one of the less, one of the larger cap names I own um, is uh, is KKR. And um, you know, people hear that and they're like, "Oh, KKR, you know, it's the private equity, you know, behemoth." And they're like, "Well, it doesn't seem like a good time to be investing in private equity funds." Right. And so like it's kind of late cycle, valuations are high. And uh, so that's a, like a pushback I get a lot when I when I talk about uh, KKR. And, and my my point that I made in the letter is that 
we're not taking like a decent chunk of our life savings and investing in KKR Fund 17. You know, we're investing in the company that runs Fund 17, and that's a different economic choice. And 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 you know, effectively, our bet is that KKR is going to continue to raise money, and because they get paid a management fee and they get paid an incentive fee, and so while those incentive fees may be lower, those those management fees are going up. And so if you're a running a pension fund and you need a path to an 8% return, are you going to buy some negative yielding bonds? Uh, you know, like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. By the way, you like the smoothness of the private equity returns versus the volatility of the public markets. Cause last year when you were down, you know, 10 and your you know, Russell 2000 or whatever, that didn't help your story of getting plus eight every year. And so like the point I was trying to make is that, uh, they're going to raise a lot of money, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, and they're also under-earning. And so, uh, you know, I went into into KKR um, in, in a fair amount of depth. Gotcha. All right. I mean, if, if, did you want to go through a couple others that, that you mentioned? I mean, it's yeah. all out, it's all out there for people to see. It's all out there. I mean, people can go read them. I'm you know, probably better writer than the speaker. Uh, I think um, give me two other ones that I kind of talked about in the in the letter um one was a, a special situation so one of the things i invest in occasionally are are SPACs, so special purpose acquisition corporations yep. they're someone on twitter labeled them murder holes right so historical returns on SPACs are negative and so you know it's a good time to walk away um uh tickers kla r calera is is one where we kind of started buying the rights, uh, which is a, a sort of quirky security that was part of the offering. And um, the point I wanted to make to my investors was we bought rights that would have value if a deal closed. And so the way a SPAC works is that they have a blank check, they come up with a deal, they propose it to shareholders that the deal passes, you know, it becomes a company and the rights have value. And so um, what initially started out as a um, sort of, uh, I guess I'll use the term bet, that the deal would happen, uh, worked out. And there were a variety of um, factors in there that, that made me confident that it had a really good chance to happen. And so while it could, this is one of those ones that could have been a zero, right? But I thought the expected value was, you know, of it was very high. And so we kind of sized it small, but, but, but enough to be meaningful. And so the deal happened. And then um, eventually uh, we were able to make a, a an agreement with the company where we would uh, effectively get paid to hold our shares. They would buy our shares back um, at a set price above market uh, over time, and we would get paid to look at effectively three earnings calls. And so the point I was trying to make to my investors was, one, I think we have asymmetry here. We've almost, I think, assuming that their credit good, we've taken out any downside, we've locked in a medium upside, and, you know, based on the company's valuation and ever, I think we could, you know, have the potential to do, like, really well. Um, and I also kind of want to make the point in there is, you know, you don't own this in your portfolio anywhere else, right? Like nobody else was out there buying, you know, rights on the, you know, gig capital one SPAC that turned into Calera and et cetera. And so, um, you know, I think it was a series, hopefully, of kind of intelligent risks that we took and and it, it manifests itself ultimately in a, in a larger position um, through appreciation. Um, and so... And then I think the third one, the company that I, I, I talked about uh, was a company, Par Technology, which um, is a restaurant point of sale system. 
And um, it, effectively for us, it's a jockey bet. It's around the, the CEO. A new CEO came in about a year ago. Uh, I think he's done you know, just about everything right. And um, from, from capital allocation, uh, from raising capital to bringing in a better team to um, an acquisition. And, and so you know, I, I was trying to highlight some of the success and progress that he's made. Um, and just as like a little aside, um, you know, so we run an investment partnership, right? And uh, I, I do view it as a partnership. And I want people to understand what we own and why we own it. And so uh, every year, you know, we bring people together for an annual meeting. We're not the only people that do this. Uh, but it's, you know, to me important. And, and part of that process was last year, I brought in the, the CEO of Par Technology. He was nice enough to come and, and do a kind of talk with our investors. And so we're, we're trying to kind of reinforce, like, remember, this is the guy you met. <laughs> This is what he did since, and, and like this is why we still believe. And, and so there's kind of a we're trying to put together a whole whole package for people, and again make them feel comfortable with what they own, know why they own it, etc. Sounds good. You know, it's funny. I when it came when it comes to part technology. Listen, I don't follow Microsoft, but part technology. I remember them putting out a ton of news. I remember, I think it was like two years ago. It was like literally every contract went and it seemed like it was like every other week, and it was like huge contracts. And, and I remember just seeing on a few forums, just like. What, these huge contracts, what the, what do they mean? Every single time, it's like a new one every week. <laughs> but anyways. They're, they're in the process of trying to deliver on some of the customers they have and, and build the business. And, you know, and again, I think people build businesses and, and we'll see. I think they have a pretty good CEO. For sure, for sure. Okay, so I, I, this is a question I, I, I've, I, I really have just started asking actually to a lot of my guests and, and I think it's very apropos here is, you know, what, what would you say has been the most difficult part of your job? Yeah, I think, um, I think I'm very lucky. Like I'm beyond lucky. Uh, and I really you know feel that every day. I think the hardest part, honestly, is delivering bad news to our investors. Right. So look, I've tried to condition people that we're going to have down months, quarters and years. Right. Uh, but it's not fun to tell them that. Right. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I have, a, have so far has been a very understanding limited partner base and um, you know, so I've been really lucky, but for example, in the first year when I raised money from, you know, only the closest people, right? Like I told you before, I don't like to make the ask. Like I was only, you know, it was like my parents, my roommate from college, like, uh, you know, it was the closest of the close and you know, we're down. Right. And so to, and, and, and I, that was all, like, not fun to tell, tell them. And now look, looking back on it, they made the investment probably more just to help me, quite frankly, than they were expecting financial returns, right? Like that's the, that's just the relationship we had, and I was lucky. And but uh, you know that that was you know and we've had other you know down quarters and stuff like that. We've had down years too, right? And so, but that's to me never fun to you know sort of explain explain that. Yeah, delivering bad news is never never fun. <laughs> but it's gonna happen. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's I, I signed up for it, and so yeah, we do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. It's funny you say that. I know a lot of uh, individual investors who, like you, have done were doing very well personally, and that was one of the reasons why they didn't want to start a fund. They're like, uh, "I don't want to deal with <laughs> having investors, basically, because it's just yeah, it's it's hard. You know, you're it, you're not just depending on yourself anymore, or it's it, it, you're just you're not just feeding for yourself. Now you're now you're 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 you know you have this group of investors you have to answer to. So I would say two things. I mean. One is I, I report quarterly, 
right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to explain like the month to month moves. I, you know, I, I, I report quarterly, which takes out some of the noise. And, you know, if, if you get the right investors, uh, it can be a huge asset. Mm-hmm. It can be the right investors can be a huge advantage. And so uh, I agree. Uh, having the wrong investors is, is doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Right. But, uh, you know, if you get the right folks, it can be, it, it can, uh, both be a source of ideas and a source of really valuable feedback that helps you prevent some larger mistakes. And, and so, um, you know, gotcha. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Just, just having investors, I wouldn't just be like, no. <laughs> so, so then what investing experience would you say has impacted you the most in your career? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I, I alluded before I worked at a fund uh, during the financial crisis, uh, it was called litmus capital. And we had two, you know, really smart, uh, portfolio managers and, um, I think I saw two things. One is the rules of the game changed in ways that I won't forget, right? So there was one weekend we were short a bunch of regional bank stocks, and over one weekend, uh, the SEC or the Congress declared you couldn't short uh, these types of stocks. And so, like Monday morning, we went in and had to cover all these things. And like the rules of the game literally changed in the middle, and that was not pretty. And that just will remember that you think everything is set, whatever, but like this is pretty fluid, and it, it's all kind of. The rules are the rules until they aren't. Um, but the other thing that I, I remember from that is that uh, we had two investors who had uh, very large separately managed accounts, and they had very mm, liquidity terms that were very generous. They could effectively pull their money when they wanted to. Um, and, and so every month we would report, report to them how they had done, and they, they would decide. And it really short, those terms really shortened the time horizon. Right. And it wasn't necessarily explicitly stated, but I, I knew that, like, you know, effectively we had 80 or 90 percent of the assets that were on a very kind of short leash. And I couldn't go in with I didn't feel like I could go in with like a five year idea. Right. Like, you know, I, I and so my investment time horizon because of the, the terms and incentives became much shorter. Right. And, and so um, as a consequence for Green Road, right, we have a three year lockup. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I can, you know pursue ideas that have multi-year time horizons and i'm not you know my biggest question is like when i don't when we had super short time horizon you got into things like well when are when are they reporting earnings and what is the consensus and like that's not a game i want to play right like i i saw like i wasn't good at it i didn't know how to get an advantage and and so like you know in many ways green haven road is set up as a reaction to that right so um we have a really broad base of investors, right? We have, you know, real lockups on it, um, philosophic alignment, et cetera. And so the, both those things left a mark, like the, the, the terms and, and, and also how the rules change. Were, uh, I won't forget. Gotcha. All right. So then, you know, we're getting close to wrapping up here because I, I know you're busy and you got to go. So, you know, second to last question, you know, what, what advice do you have for new investors in the stock market? Yeah, it's a good question. A uh, few pieces. I would say don't do it unless you love it. Um, like the world doesn't need another investor or fund manager. And if you don't love it, there's probably someone who's great at it. And even after you pay them a fee or whatever, they'll, they'll have a better return. And you'll get to go do something you enjoy. So like if you don't love it, like don't do it is, is what I would say. There, there's sort of other ways to, to, to make money and live life. 
Um, I'd say only risk money you can afford to lose. Uh, you know, like using leverage and, uh, you know, uh, if you have family commitments and other things, like just, just leave it aside. Um, and then like, but, but so if you love it and you have the kind of money you can afford to lose, um, I have two things I would say. One is, um, be concentrated and long-term, right? That doesn't mean like one stock, but it also doesn't mean on 50, right? Like, uh, you're just, not, I mean, it's really, really hard to have superior performance if you own 50 or a hundred things, you're basically recreating an index. Um, and I think I, I may have heard this on your podcast from someone wiser than I, uh, but it was, uh, you can't borrow somebody else's conviction. Sure. I think one of your guests said, and like, you know, it, knowing that it's so-and-so's largest position is like not an investment thesis, right? Like ultimately you have to do the work and get comfortable with it and understand it inside and out. I think if you're going to do it. And so um, that would be my other you got to you got to do the work got to do the work that's for sure so with that where, where can my audience go and find more information about your work and you and green haven road uh online and, and also on social media yeah so um we have a website green haven road cap greenhavenroad.com uh there's an investor letter section there that's got you know i think four or five years of of old letters and there's a lot in there to the extent you care um and then we can also sign up for let just to get our letters as they come out. Uh, there's a form on the website. As I said, we're not going to follow up with you. We're not going to harass you. You can say, Hey, I just want the letters. You don't even need them. We won't even send you information about the fund. You're just kind of going to mailing list. Or if you want information about the fund, we'll, we'll send you that too, if you want it. Um, but so that's on greenhavenroad.com. Um, and then on Twitter, I don't really tweet to be honest with you. Uh, so I'm kind of like a once a month Twitter, which tweeter I, 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 consume a lot but i don't i don't tweet a lot but uh, green haven road i think is our handle good well you're about to get tagged on this that's for sure so i, expe right. I expect at least one retweet you know but uh <laughs> but but scott with that man I, I really appreciate you you coming on and sharing your insights and really it, i really enjoyed our conversation today thank you all right uh, best podcast i've ever done all right and the only one <laughs> as of now <laughs> take care all right thanks bye, bye. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Scott, again for coming out to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where I'm my next guest to discuss all things investing. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.